Hello, and welcome to the Future Christian Podcast, your source for insights and ideas into what it means to live as a follower of Jesus in the 21st century. At the Future Christian Podcast, we talk to pastors, authors, and other faith leaders for helpful advice and practical wisdom to help you and your community of faith walk boldly into the future. Here's your host, Lauren Richmond Jr. Welcome to the Future Christian Podcast. My name is Lauren Richmond Jr. Today I'm welcoming Daniel Steigerwald to the show. For 30 plus years, Dan has served in various leadership capacities, from leading teams to start new expressions of faith community, to pastoring, and to leading at senior levels in both national and international Christian nonprofits. With his wife, Anne, Dan spent the brunt of those years in Europe raising their daughters in the Netherlands. From this long journey in ministry, he has acquired a good grasp of what it's like to follow Christ into the complexities, heartaches, and joys of servant leadership, which is why he chooses to spend his time coming alongside those called to lead as an agent of grace to help leaders flourish and accomplish all that God and life have for them. Dan holds a Doctor of Ministry in Leadership in the Emerging Culture, as well as a Master of Divinity. He is the author of four practical books, including what we'll be talking about today, 10 Pitfalls in Starting New Churches, Avoiding Hazards on the Way to Health. Welcome to the show, Dan. What else would you like our listeners to know about you? Yeah, it's great to be here with you. Um, yeah, I've crossed a lot of uh, cultural boundaries in my life, and that's always been en- enriching. I guess a little trivia piece would be one cultural boundary crossing that I didn't expect was with Lyme disease back in 2015. And that kind of knocked me off my feet for a good five to six years and just coming back. But that's been very enriching for me. Um, I'm an Enneagram four. Um, I wing strongly both to five and three with intellection and achiever strengths. And the Lyme disease, this long chronic illness time, uh, occasioned a chance to let go and kind of move into the heart and head centers, I move out of those into the body more. You know, I, I, can, I can drag my body <laughs> and make it do whatever I want. I have most of my life, but I basically, um, you know, drag my immunity down and everything by just working way too hard, strong mind, uh, strong heart. Uh, yeah, a good coaching practice, actually. I didn't realize this, but um, the pursuit of um, International Coach Federation certification credentialing and, and getting especially the PCC the last couple years, it's really helped me um, to be in that body center Um to kind of corral the futurist. I have a futurist strength as well and the strengths finders and uh, to actually um, deal with the heaviness of the moment and all the anxiety about the future, just to be able to imbibe God's shalom in the moment has been uh, life-changing, I would say, for me in these last couple years. So it's, it's just a one of those things, oblique things in life that hits you, you don't expect to get um, a chronic illness, but I understand a new people group um, there's, that, that is unreached, <laughs> basically. Yeah, yeah. That's so, so interesting. Uh, thanks for sharing that about uh, how, it's interesting how that, 
the diagnosis or however your perspective on it has changed your perspective um, and allowed you to embrace different parts of yourself. Talk, if you would, about kind of your journey of faith, what that looked like for you originally and what that looks like today. Yeah, I was raised Catholic, um, loved the community aspect, um, harassing nuns and getting disciplined I deserved. (laughs) But but my faith, it it was very transactional in a lot of ways. You know, you had the confession, so the clean slate, the dirty slate to confession and then repeat. And uh, the Trinity for me was all messed up because you had this distant father uh, with the son and Mary basically as, as intermediaries, you know, the, those more close to me, more like me as a person that I could talk to, to get to this distant father. And uh, that, that held me till um, college. And then I went into, to uh, uh, deeply into new age out of the Christian currents and uh, finally got swept back into um, Christianity, you know, we were we were actually getting high. A friend of mine listening to Lester Sumrall, a Pentecost preacher that would travel the world and had all these incredible signs and stuff, and we would laugh our heads off. But then there's this question always: that What if one of these incidents really was true? What if what if I missed something? So in, in the oddest sort of way, through some Pentecost preacher online. I decided to look more into faith. That got me into eventually the vineyard movement I encountered, and uh, that really woke me up to the, the power of God and God's eminence in, in a new way, um, you know, getting away from the idea that somehow I am God in, in the new age, age or divine and uh, to a God and creator that uh, was much more close to me and personal than I had in, encountered before. And that, that was fueled more through uh, a long track with, with YWAM and getting out uh, around the world, um, open to other cultures, and sharing my faith. But in the midst of that kind of more accessible God, more personal God, highly individualistic uh, reading of scripture in that, you know, for all its uh, weaknesses, there was a lot of emphasis in, in my Christian faith on end times and signs and wonders and prophecies and spiritual warfare. And a lot of that was um, not just kind of charismania, it, you know, out on the, the mission fields in, in Africa, India, and other places across Europe. Uh, we were genuinely seeing, you know, pretty incredible moves of the, the Spirit of God. And I, I think that my tendency was to normalize a lot of things that I was experiencing on the mission edge. And when I came back to uh, America or to normal culture, um, a lot of that was just the regular muck of life. And I realized that my my concept of God and relating to God as a Christian, really, it, it needed to be much more informed by Scripture, uh, not simply the experiential interventionist kind of God that that I longed for. And so I did the Bible college, uh, the MDiv thing, went to actually got my MDiv in Amsterdam um, at a seminary. But there was much focus 
along the way in that Christian experience on the right truths, you know, and parsing out scripture into systematic theologies. And I went from the hyper-Arminian Charles Finney theology to the um, hyper-Calvinist theology and and seminary. And that kind of theosection just about killed my faith, Um, cast me into a long, dark night. I mean, I was still functioning in leadership and church planting and, and leading uh, the church we had planted. And, but in the background, just this long, dark night um, led me, it drove me into contemplative uh, Christianity. And kind of that formational aspect got deeply ingrained in my being. And it, it's still there as deep as can be right now. But there was this desire to encounter God and to recognize that my faith had a process, that it, it was uh, punctuated by occasional um, you know, remarkable interventions, but more generally, it was a, a long slog of just finding God in, in, uh, in the community of faith and finding God in creation and so forth. And uh, fortunately, you know, narrative theology, N.T. Wright, a lot of these um, theologians really helped me and woke me up to uh, another way to view Scripture. You know, kind of the communal side of the text came alive for me. So that's sort of, a lot of those things have carried me uh, to where I am uh, today as, as a Christian, those influences. Mm-hmm. That's great. That's great. Thanks for sharing that. It's interesting how you really had quite the experience in a you know in a really diverse section. Or what am I trying to say? You really had quite many experiences in the the in the in the diverse spectrum that makes up you know kind of Christianity or Christendom. You've had many experiences. Yeah, I mean, I I think that Lauren and and in the past. You know, it's interesting you say that because I have felt constrained by a tribalism in mm-hmm. the past, mm-hmm. um, and that tribalism was reflected in, um, you know, being in the evangelical camp as a tribe, but um, also uh, being in in organizational environments, you know, uh, within a mission organizations, uh, you know, first YOM and then uh, Communitas International, which I still am involved with, the church planning organization for 25 years and, and love. But I, I recognized from within the full-time roles I had within those organizations, is, is, and more specifically, and, you know, uh, more recently under Communitas, that my interaction with other organizations was often limited because I was so involved as anyone would, th- you know, would imagine with our own people in our own organization. And that, that was a, within Forge, a stint with Forge and, and Hirsch's group. And I just saw a lot of this tribalism. And in the meantime, my wife and I were, were getting, um, you know, deeply involved. My wife does leadership assessments and, you know, I've been working with church planners just a, a lot, trying to take our learnings from Europe into uh, post-Christian America, and you know, just seeing uh, the rich diversity. When you know, I, I remember PCUSA. We were first going into working with uh, PCUSA, probably I don't know, 
15 years ago or so, and finding the entrepreneurial pioneering groups mm -hmm. in, in PCUSA who used a different language for the same thing that we had in our tribe. Yeah. And there just became this rich diversity of learning from um, mainline Christianity to inform uh, my evangelicalism at the time and back, back and forth and uh, kind of took me out of out of evangelicalism. I mean, I, I still believe in the evangel, and uh, but I would consider myself um, more progressive uh, evangelical, trying to defy the labeling. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> nowadays, but yeah. So it has been. It has been. It has been rich. I think dealing with other cultures and other, you know, living in in a, in a culture where you learn the language, you stay for the long time. We were at 18 years in the Netherlands. And just the way the Dutch think and to be able to scrutinize the way Americans think, but also the American church and, and the way it thinks and uh, versus European uh, Christians, that, that was all very helpful for me to recognize more and more that that we do get trapped in our, our little silos yeah. and they're not little silos. Sometimes they're big silos. Right. Yeah. And it seems like you, you know, use the word tribalism and then labels. This is my perspective. To, to me, it seems sometimes that the labels can themselves be, I don't know, a silo or a tribe that, you know, can be just as challenging, problematic, I guess, it depends on your perspective. Uh, Share, if you would, spiritual practices that you've developed that you'd recommend or you found meaningful yourself. Yeah, you know, um, I think there's a much of the practice that I'm engaged in uh, in recent years and, and now um, have to do with, again, that sense that's embodiment. Um, how, how can I uh, embody the things of God that the experience of God uh, much more, you know, through tactile um, objects and, and through um, looking at the community of faith much more in a, a communal um, sense of embodying the gospel. So that's been a big real, a big issue driving my own formation, this sense of embodiment. And, you know, uh, Rainier Rilke, uh, there was a, there's a particular poem of his. Um, I don't know what the title is, but the poem, it goes like this, and it's been very much kind of a guiding thing for my spirituality uh, a lot through the Lyme disease and, and, and through now, but it, it's a very short poem. It goes like this. It says, God speaks to each of us as he makes us, then walks with us silently out of the night. And these are the words we dimly hear. You, sent out beyond your recall, go to the limits of your longing, embody me, flare up like flame and make, sh make big shadows I can move in. Let everything happen to you, beauty and terror. Just keep going. No feeling is final. Don't let yourself lose me. Nearby is the country they call life. You will know it by its seriousness. Give me your hand. That you know that that poem. Um, I have reflected on that many times. It's it's a poem of of embodiment that really does uh, touch upon um, much of my 
my spiritual practice in, in an individual and in a communal way. Um, I find that, uh, and one, one way would be, you know, this sense of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit sitting, you know, Scott Erickson's picture of, of the Trinity, um, you know, this triangle with these three figures intertwined in a Celtic kind of uh, embrace and pouring into each other's cup. I had that at the apex of my office. Uh, now we're moving house and I'm in an empty house looking at an empty apex. But it was that was part of my prayer with stones, you know, artifacts held in my hand. That's been a big spiritual uh, practice for me. And, uh, you know, different. I have a different stone for intercession. I have a different stone for praying with the community, the faith, um, you know, the heavenly witnesses. Um, I have a different stone for specific intercession and a different stone. And this one's maybe funny to you, but this one's for me, for, for me praying out of my clay. It's a, it's, I, I'm big into to rocks. I studied geology and Penn state and stuff, Oh wow! but yeah. the, um, fool's gold, Pyrite. Yeah, uh, it's, it, I have a, a good hunk of beautiful. It looks like gold, but it's it's fake gold. And I kind of attribute that's that's my clay. I can look like gold, but I'm still clay. I'm I still sin. I still uh, need the God, um, you know, God that that is alive, that knows me, and I, um, is able to intervene in, in my life. But that has been a big part. Um, in my life. And I think also some of this sense of trying to embody um, the living God, you know, through the, through nature, through creating, you know, taking what is out in, in creation and creating ambient social spaces uh, that, that I love doing that so that, you know, a, a spiritual practice for me that really helps this sense of embodiment or, or encounter maybe of, of God, you know, it might be to, you know, make a part of the garden that, that, you know, is lush green that uh, is surrounded with beautiful, you know, objects and so forth mm -hmm. and, and comfortable that, that puts people in, in a thin space of, of a, of a sort, yeah. a thin place yeah. so that they can, and then to have conversations just about life and about, spirituality. And I just find that I want to, in my spiritual life now, I, I really want the practices to be inclusive and to be, to be stage setters for people to go in. And so the environment that's created for those practices is just as important uh, as the practices. And um, probably, uh, Lauren, I, I'll just, this is the last I'll say on this. You know, they um probably the most life-changing practices, and I'm trying to build these back in, um, are spiritual friendship triads. My spiritual director, whom I um, loved dearly, uh, who walked with me in, in a friendship. I mean, we had two different triads regularly, you know, focusing on on you know how is God moving in your life? What are you hearing um, in your soul? The invitations. Um, then my spiritual director got killed in a cr 
critical and a freak accident wow. uh, two and a half years ago, which kind of really um, cast me into a bit of deeper grieving. Mm-hmm. We're all doing grieving mm-hmm. through these uh, these times, but uh, also underscoring the importance of grief rituals. You know, um, uh, the wild edge of sorrow. Yeah. Uh, if you ever read Francis Weller, I mean, uh, I've read that twice. No, but it's been recommended to me. Yeah. Yeah, and seeing so many of those practices as critical, and now finding a new spiritual director, um, you know, it's funny, I'm an Enneagram 4, you know, and Enneagram 4s, when they move toward health, they move toward the one type, Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, I prayed that the Lord would provide uh, a suitable director after my my other friend mm-hmm. got killed, and lo and behold, I have I have an Enneagram One director wow. um, who I, I feel like their own walk into Franciscan spirituality um, helps me introduce me to that whole terrain much more of mm-hmm. of of being in the moment and the the uh, creational um, finding shalom, um, engaging shalom all all over, and. Uh, yeah, that's that's been really important to me, Lauren, um, to recognize, and this fuels my spiritual practices. I used to believe that that uh, the Earth was not a neutral place for human beings; mm-hmm. that uh, there was a lot of things, the evil and depravity of humanity, um, pulled us always away from God's high ideal. But I've really come to believe so much more that there is a shalom proclivity, that's what I would call it, built into all of creation so that God is ever laboring uh, for us to be uh, awakened to who God is through through nature. This is, you know, general revelation has, has back, been backseated um, theologically for, for centuries uh, in certain Protestant camps, especially. And I think that we're seeing right now just a perva- just all pervasive interest within, I think, the body of Christ and church leaders and deconstructors in, in how God relates to us, not only through the text, but how he relates to us or, or God relates to us, um, she, whatever we, we, we attribute to God through nature and creation. And uh, that's very freeing to me to, to see that shalom um, encouragement can be found and that there's stage setters for faith everywhere um, when we enter into those uh, that shalom yeah. resonance. Sort of what Rilke talked about in that poem, you'll know it by its serious, seriousness. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ser- that German word really you c- you can look at it because he was German. It's an English translation, um, but it's like this piercing resonance, uh, this sense that this is reality, this is real reality. And uh, anyway, that that has been very helpful to my to my faith and giving me assurances to hold on to the things. Um, you know, I think Michael Beck put it. Uh, very well in the visional aspect of that. Mm-hmm. When he said God has, you know, like Hebrews, we have an anchor for our souls, Hebrews 6. He says God has thrown an anchor from the future, um, which gives mm-hmm. us the holding ground for the present. Um, and we can discover 
you know, the shalom now, but we also have that hope of, of the perfect um, consummation of all things that our longings point to. And, and so that, that all fuels very much my spiritual practice, mm-hmm. um, these sort of things. Well, that's, you've given us so much. Thank you for that. Um, so many, I'm thinking about your, the, you know, the highlight of your, the importance of grieving. You mentioned the wild edge of sorrow, you know, nature awakening us to God and, and, and natural revelation, you know, the anchor from the, the future for the present, such an interesting. And then of course I live in Colorado. So, um, there was of course a gold rush activity out. There was a gold rush time out here. So of course, Fool's gold is something every kid is who's been in the mountains is acquainted with. Uh, so such good stuff here. Let's move on and talk about your book. So uh, I wanted to have Daniel on to talk about his book, 10 Pitfalls in Starting New Churches, Avoiding Hazards Along the Way to Health. And uh, Daniel, for the sake of book sales, we won't talk about all 10, uh, but I want to talk about a few of them here and and hear your perspectives and so one thing that I thought I wanted to kind of highlight or hear first of all was you talk about side jobs getting in the way of ministry. And I think you wrote this, I think you wrote this, I imagine, before kind of COVID hit. And this was certainly true before COVID, and it seems all the more true, you know, post or, you know, in the, in the wake of COVID is the challenges of just supporting oneself and one's family if one has a family in ministry and the need to be bivocational or whatever the word folks are using. Um, so talk about kind of like, you know, jobs getting away with ministry when jobs make sense and when they don't make sense. Sure. You know, when I, when I wrote that as a pitfall, again, this is just a takedown point for, for church planting teams. And I, I would actually argue, and this was even before, COVID or anything, that co-vocationality, as we call it now, um, having multiple platforms that may be even more than bivocationality actually is a good thing. And uh, it, it, But I, I, I wrote into that just to say that if we latch on to the ideal and this sense that all of us need to have multiple jobs, especially when we have shared leadership configurations, you know, what are some of the limits of that? So it, it's more looking at it, hey, you got to be careful if, if you're going to have multiple gigs going at once. And um, so I, I want people to hear that. And th- these are jobs make the most sense, I think. Um, having extra jobs when they're manageable around the unpredictable elements of, of startup. You know, church startup is, is a lot like any kind of startup. It can be all um, demanding. You got to hold the line on momentum, uh, leadership presence, and leadership momentum. And, uh, you know, also those side jobs, you know, and this is re- related, they, they shouldn't compete with the primary focus of planting. I, I've been in situations on church planting teams, actually, <laughs> where um, working within the leadership team and, and trying to help um, other leaders, seeing them find other jobs that they have a passion for, they realize, and then oh, uh, when church yeah. planning falls into second yeah. place, it gets very hard unless there's another team member who has 
planting as a primary passion. Mm -hmm. If you got two or three leaders sharing and and everybody is like, well, we're doing this on the side, (laughs) then um, leadership presence and catalytic leading um, just don't happen enough. And you might end up with a small house church or, you know, something um, that doesn't have a, a strong interface, perhaps with its neighborhood that's not able to live as that sign foretaste and, and agent as Newbegin, O.C. Newbegin mm-hmm, would say, mm-hmm. within our, their local culture. Um, I think jobs are good too when they, they do provide a stable, decent income uh, to help undergird you know, a strong social base, a social base being that, that net of finances and relationships that, that undergird a church planter. So all those things argue for the the goodness as long as it's done, um, you know, within uh, awareness of those things that could deplete the energy needed and presence for a church plant. Um, Yeah. I thought about this, um, Daniel, like I'm an introvert. Uh, So, I mean, I think that's one of the, I don't know about in, in your context, but in, in my context, folks are surprised about how many pastors are introverts. And I'm very mm-hmm. good at being really extroverted on Sunday, but I can't do that like 24-7. So for me, yeah. if I was going to have a part-time job, it'd have to be very kind of like low-key, not demanding a lot of social energy for me. Yep. There you go. Yeah. So it's it's a, a stewardship of, of energy and focus and presence, you know, um, that is very much part of what I've experienced with with church planning teams and being involved in church planning myself. Yeah. So you mentioned. Um, so you mentioned if I if I heard you right, like the the challenges that can come when there's different members of, of the leadership team having different kind of levels of a passion or I don't know, I don't know if commitment's too strong a word, but you know, someone's, someone has like, that's their, their main passion. And you mentioned people finding, you know, in other jobs kind of to be their highest passion. Uh, Another pitfall you mentioned was undervaluing a formative team uh, ethos. And I'm not sure this is had what you had in mind when you wrote it, but I wonder if there's some correlation there uh, around the the kind of shared leadership. How can a, a team ethos uh, yeah. What am I trying to say? Can I be, be prepared for such challenges? Yeah. Um, well, I just mentioned this about the, the last element, um, perhaps didn't come out very clear in that the, the side job things, we're looking for overlap. I mean, mm. the brilliance of a side job is that it gives you credibility and it allows you to be out and among in relationships yeah. where you're not having to describe to people first and foremost that you know, you're trying to start a church. <laughs> um, although I think we need to be open about that. But it, it that if you can engineer the overlap, I mean, that's the idea, ideal. The, and that's part of that conservation of energy, focus, and presence. Um, I think that the formative team ethos is very much um, part of that because, you know, when whenever you're uh, – trying to to incorporate a developmental perspective within your team, you're asking questions of yourself uh, individually. Um, you know, it, it's that one, I think, I've seen so many teams implode by that because 
church planters, as you may well know, are are, are a very driven lot. Yeah. Who, who also are under the pressure of outside sponsors and supporters, oftentimes denominational metrics, mm-hmm. you know, that are imposed. And there's just this sense of urgency. And it's those urgent and important things in the mind of a planter, they can easily begin to submerge, you know, the important and not urgent, which is, you know, our our development, our our formation as human beings, um, our relationships, how we together share leadership and build trust among one another so that we're not so oriented on just the product and getting things done that that we can only be in in a celebratory mode together when we're achieving stuff, yeah, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that that, that uh, it, it tends to that developmental perspective, you know, I, I could have added to the 10 pitfalls, you know, weak, uh, you know, kind of erosion of one's social base. Hmm. Um, that's implicit in finances, but, you know, the whole thing, if I'm giving, if I have a developmental perspective on my own, life, if I'm tending to my relationship with my family, my spouse, if I'm single, my significant others that really provide that social net and that rejuvenation center for me out of which, you know, that's my shalom center. If I'm not fueling that, then um, I, I will begin to default to to the product and to, you know, the hard run toward the product and um, all the things that that can drive leaders into isolation. And I think that is the thing I've seen that is most dangerous when we begin to isolate our personal uh, lives and experiences, especially for point, you know, for lone point leaders that have a team of followers. Um, It can be really dangerous, isolating place. And I've seen that take down way too many uh, church plants and uh, cutting corners on integrity and in order to get the job done, yeah. you know, it's always going to catch you. Character, um, we may not see that in the political sphere, so <laughs> obviously, but but it's always going to catch you, you know. And I encourage. That's why I encourage all point leaders to have a coach. You know, have a have a coach who is both developmental as a coach and a performance coach. You know, within the uh, professional coaching world, you have developmental coaching and performance coaching. And I believe both of them need to happen together, ideally, because you you want to be attendant, you know, attendant at, mm-hmm. at any time to, you know, you do have to hit, hit milestones. You do have to um, keep moving forward le- leadership wise with the church plant. Um, you can't spend too much, you know, way too much time on, on development, but but you can spend the time you need uh, to to make that a rich center out of which performance can be had, and you know, also if you if you don't have that rich center, you don't handle conflict well. And I think conflict still is probably one of the biggest takedown points for for teams not being able to navigate it well. Boy, some really good stuff there. Um, some really good stuff there. Um, I want to move on for the sake of time because there's a couple points I want to get to, but. Uh, just for our listeners, good stuff right there. Um, something related to kind of the urgency and pressure I heard uh, from you is another pitfall you mentioned, that of going public too soon. And this is really kind of practical. Uh, but talk about how going public too soon 
can be a practical or excuse me, can be a pitfall pitfall. Yeah. You know, this is something that, um, uh, that has come probably about 15 years ago within Communitas, we began to identify, um, a number of dynamics that really were not prescriptive, but that were, you know, they describe what we were seeing in a lot of different cross-cultural church plants. And so we just called them out. And uh, part of that was, you know, embedding in your context as you start and, you know, initiating a, a coordinated gospel response after you've done the missional work or while you're doing the missional work. But then we had this category where we jumped to ecclesiology, you know, where uh, it was about determining the form of, of church. Mm-hmm. We had originally called it churching, but there was a, a dynamic of maturing into whatever ecclesiology or form of church you wanted. But we left out a central dynamic, and we call that practice. They're all described by um, Verbs, and you can see that in the book Dynamic Adventure if you're really interested in that, the six dynamics in action. But that practice dynamic, I, I began to see that teams, you know, what we default to it's so often in HAPS today, you see it in launch language. Whenever I hear uh, the language of launch and church planning, I, I think, okay, um, it's a flat, you know, kind of dropping in, parachute into context, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, it's I have an idea, a beat on ecclesiology uh, from a church I've been a part of, and I'm going to apply that ecclesiology when I get in, into context. Or we're going to go in, we're going to get a read of what's needed, mm-hmm. but then we're going to build up to this big moment that's going to be a public attractional moment to draw people together. And what what's missing there is, and it has to do with credibility and discipleship, is that teams need to walk through, they need to have an elongated season hmm walking through and practicing two things are part of the same coin. On one side, you have their core identity. That's, their, that's the vision that, that God has put in their heart. That's their values. That's their core metaphor. I'm really into don't choose your church name and metaphor until you know the people God is going to have you reach and, and all the, the ways that you that might affect that, that name that you choose. It's your your theological distinctives, mm-hmm. your culture. Mm-hmm. You know, those are the things that define your identity um, as a communal entity. The other side of the co- coin is your communal practice, and that's your Jesus way of life. That's your mode of discipleship. And leadership teams they need to try on both of those things with their people, with their their growing kind of behind the scenes uh, core group before they go public. Because if they don't they're beginning to, they start asking people to practice a Jesus way of life, uh, a, you know, a core group of up in and and out practices that they themselves have not yet found transformational or a packaged discipleship, even worse, that they have not found um, transformational. And they're asking others to to bring it in. And oftentimes those discipleship um, pathways, whatever we call um, end up being things that that don't really fit the community because they haven't gone through that trial, that road testing, and also the embedding of of vision and values and identity and living that out in the core leadership team is so important to you taking that fractal and spinning it out into a wider community. And so 
that's why I think this is so important uh, not to go public with your public face until you've road tested um, your identity and your Jesus way of life. Um, yeah. Uh, I want to highlight some things there as I'm hearing them, because I think it's it's really interesting. It makes sense, of course, how these things all tie together. Um, you know, uh, the pressure, if if this is your only source of income as a as a planting team you know if you're if you're depending on the church launch to like to to bring in a, a salary is to go public hence the importance of you know having some uh co-vocationality is like the word you say um but then you know i'm intrigued by um that emphasis on building the uh, what the core identity and the communal practice before even a name is picked out. I think that's so interesting. Like it seems like we want to work on branding and name before, you know, those values. But if you have those, if I'm hearing it right, if we have those kind of shared values worked out, that'll solve problems down the road before they come up almost, I can imagine. Yeah. Mar- marketing, we, we are held captive to marketing. I mean, just w- their empire has, and just the ways of culture that we have, we so readily adapt Marketing looks at the general trends and tries to, to respond. And often the ecclesiology flows out of a sense of general trends of a city, uh, of, of an area of demographics, but it's not out of incarnational practice and presence. And, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm, Alan Hirsch and, you know, I mean, Newbegin and all these guys, uh, and I wish there were more gals there are we need to pay attention to. Certainly there have been. But we, we need much more of that incarnational um, approach in practicing in these ways is totally consistent with an incarnational kind of ecclesiology to emerge that has much more of a chance, I really believe, in reaching into um, that whole group of leaving leavers who are leaving uh, Christianity but not leaving Jesus, the duns. And, also the soil of, of culture where so many, especially young people, have no affiliation with, with anything Christian. Um, the other way appeals to, I, I really believe, more and more that, you know, fly in, get the, read, the demographic read, uh, way too much to, to Christians, to floating Christians, to transfers. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, let me ask you, I, I want to ask you two more questions uh, before we take a break here. Um, uh, one is related to the book here. So uh, another pitfall you mentioned is adapting bad progress metrics, which again, I think ties into your overall theme here of, of, of contextuality, incarnationality, um, discernment. Uh, uh, yeah, t- tell me more about that. Yeah, this one I really think um, is so important. I work um, with, you know, as a coach, but professionally, but and I work with a lot of entrepreneurs, but I also train uh, coaches. I've done that Fuller uh, Seminary Encyclical uh, Inc. We developed a coach training program for startup coaches, church startup coaches this past year. And this one is the reason I mentioned that is this really is important for coaches, especially um, to, to get a grasp of because, you know, metrics, we may not, as, as a church planning team, 
uh, we may not be aware of, you know, the progress horizons that are kind of imposed upon us or expected of us. And I, I am a firm believer in, you know, identifying very specifically the expectations of the sponsoring agencies, because those have to come into play. But the sponsors got to recognize you cannot impose metrics on a team uh, that that they do not have a part in with agency. They need Preach to be it. able to interpret. <laughs> yeah, they need to be able to come up with yeah. their own uh, metrics and progress indicators. Yeah. And uh, so I'm I'm really very you know very much what you know what are what's the expectations from your sponsors and what are you seeing on the ground. Um, that should be your progress horizons. And within Communitas, we originally, this has been some 15 years, um, it was part of the, the first book I wrote with another guy in our, our church planner and a mission on the hallmarks of maturing church. Now for us in Communitas, we needed to, we realized we had a lot of church plants that were busy with activities like Acts 2, you know, meeting together, um, you know, worshiping, doing all these things. And the, the, but there was no way to define um, really progress toward maturing ecclesia. And so we came up with 12 hallmarks of maturing church that are generic to any, any form of maturing ecclesia, whatever you choose. And these were to provide discernment benchmarks. So one might be, you know, the mobilization of the body of Christ. So it, you got the hands and feet and head. That's, that's a hallmark of any form of ecclesia. And so what is your, you know, looking at these benchmarks, what would be the top two or three that are relevant to you right where your team is at today? And what would be your progress indicators? How would you know, you know, and be able to celebrate a success a year from now based on those benchmarks? And I, I realized that a friend of mine um, really helped me with this, that, um, you know, works a lot as an executive uh, implementer with a, a large national ministry to really talk about the evidences, uh, you know, and, and this is so important because you can have a general sense of progress and church plants, um, the bad progress metrics part is when there's somebody else's metrics, but also when they're weak metrics, when you really have no way of gauging you know, substantially, except for, well, we seem to have grown since last year in this area. We have, you know, more worship, you know, deeper worship, those kind of words rather than, you know, the quantitative more, um, you know. And so I, I get into asking that question. Well, tell me the outcomes. What would success look like six months or 12 months for you in these areas that you've deemed as important to growth? And give me the evidences. How will you know? Um, you know, you have that that outcome as evidenced by what? <laughs> you know, and to get people to describe church planners to begin to describe success in terms of specific definable uh, targets, evidences of that. I mean, it just by leaps and bounds. I can't tell you how helpful uh, that has been. Um, to a lot of church plants, and yeah, that 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 has been, you know, I hope that I'm I'm making that clear. That that is sort of what. Yeah, in my experience, uh, I think one of the, my struggles was uh, I didn't have like the kind of like input I think into like 
the denominational expectations or even network expectations, which I think really made it challenging when um, my like lay leadership would be like, oh, we're seeing so much growth in this area and that area. But then, you know, I would have to basically tell them this other metric is really the only metric that the people who are, you know, supporting this thing really care about. <laughs> and he thinks. Yeah. I mean, when you start saying metrics like, Hey, I want to know your number of baptisms. I want to know your, I mean, some of those are healthy, but they're not, they're not inspiring metrics. They're not, they're like reporting metrics. I got to report to the denomination that you're using the money we invested in you well and so forth. And a lot of those denominations, I find, it's not just denominations. The organizations ask things of church planters without defining what they expect clear enough, clearly enough. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, I don't know if you've come across her work, um, Karen Rohr. Um, oh, yeah. She's done, she's written some stuff that I thought was really helpful um, on. Yeah, out of Pitts, P- PT at Pittsburgh. Right, kind of on, I don't I think of it most clearly as like lead lag measures. Um, I think, I think if I'm remembering correctly, this was from her book about like, you know, one planter found that like her most important metric was how many cups of coffee she was having with people a week, you know, for instance, uh, which I think is really, yeah, that would be some of the as evidence by answering those, those kind of questions helps you and it helps you talk to your people about this is what good progress would look like for us, you know? Well, I have a, for our listeners, I have some activity in the background I'm going to attend to. So Daniel, let's take a quick break and we'll come back with some goals and questions. (laughs) All right, we're back with Dan Steigerwald. And uh, for our listeners, um, we're actually recording this at a separate time, first time in the podcast history, I think, because uh, uh, my children were not, uh, well, they're, they're being kids and being hungry. And thankfully, uh, Dan was gracious enough to allow us to record the rest of this at a later time. So you won't uh, hear any voices in the background or screaming, perhaps a dog bark here. But Dan, thanks so much again for your time and, and making space and time for us again. Uh, so the closing questions you can take, it's seriously or not as you'd like to, uh, but if you're Pope for a day, uh, what does that day look like for you? Yeah, I mean, Pope Dan for a day, that's a good question. I think that if I had any sway and the possibility of moving the church, I would talk about majoring on the ma- the, the majors and not on the minors. I, I feel like there's this in culture, in the church, and it's called internal culture, this kind of tension, which is a healthy tension to have between uh, fidelity to love and, and the gospel versus fidelity to the scripture narrative. Mm-hmm. And I think that we can, in times of pressure, um, in liminality, we're often drawn back to this conserving, holding posture of the church where we get we end up defending things and guarding things too aggressively um, and at the sacrifice of, of the loving stance and presenting a gospel that is meant to be accessible to all peoples. And so I, I was reflecting on, 
um, recently on a, num- a number of s- scriptures. One of those times where you know you kind of have a time where you're um, sitting before the Lord and, and and praying. But Mark 12 was my starting text. I was focusing on just this parable of the vineyard, you know, where Jesus is talking about um, all the, you know, the the vineyard owner who is away at sending servants and finally sending his own son and how eventually they, they, they killed his son. Well, it's an indictment against obviously the religious teach, teachers of Israel that were so into defending the system as they knew it through scripture, you know, and Paul was like this too until his conversion, just the zeal without that, that full knowledge. Um, and then, you know, I, I, and then, you know, there's a, a definite judgment that comes from that. And I contrasted that and read my reading actually uh, to Acts 10, you know, where God is speaking to Peter, Peter, who's already tasted of the gospel, you know, in the fullest sense. And then we have, you know, the sheet coming down, Peter in a trance and after Cornelius has had his vision and, you know, God opening the doors to the Gentile and Gentiles and, you know, Peter not wanting to be unclean or defy scripture. And then God has to say, well, wait a second, you know, I'm including, you know, and don't exclude what God is including. And then finally, you know, in Romans 15, you got, you know, God to, through Paul to us. And, you know, I've been reflecting on this lot where, you know, Paul talks a lot about for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so, so that through endur- endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And then he says, may the Lord who gives you an endurance and encouragement also give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Jesus Christ. And there, I think, in this whole element, we I, I just feel like if I'm Pope Dan were to say, I would say, you know, we have to be prepared for God doing new things for and accenting the love of God and and the full range of what the gospel uh, means and not get locked into, um, you know, that constant defending, guarding stance that, uh, you know, goes back to the narrative of Scripture and says, well, I, I'm not going to violate that. Well, we, we don't want to violate, violate that, but we, we do want to stay open to the fact that our interpretations um, and our discernment has to be based on a 21st century discernment and not a New Testament era discernment, you know, like putting ourselves back in the first century. We have realities we deal with here, but all along, you know, the overarching call of the gospel is to move into the love of God and to stay true to the, not, not a reduced gospel, you know, a gospel of rec- reconciliation, of forgiveness, of engagement, and and not disembodied, um, you know, hopes for the future, but, you know, kind of an an embodied gospel now, and that somehow it relates to humanity and even new creation coming, you know, and all these sort of things, I think, we don't often hold in in good tension. And so that's my Pope Dan thing is, you know, keep keep the major on the love of God, um, 
you know, what is Paul? Paul says to, to the Thessalonians at some point, at Second Thessalonians 2, um, I believe, he says something about, um, may the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's persever- perseverance. And I think the, the essence of, of God's call in this time is to direct our hearts firmly and solidly into the love of God and to the endurance that Christ had and relying on God himself to you know, give us that injection of spirit energy. But don't get in the, the, in the realm of, of parsing and dividing out um, scripture and, and uh, truths that, that actually could usurp the love of God. And if you, if you have a gospel that's devoid of the love of God first in the name of truth, um, then you've hit the Pharisaic um, you know, error. And I, I just, I'm afraid I see that happening in, in a, quite a few sectors of the church. Um, so that's what Pope Dan would say, but, but let me come off the Pope stand because I'm not Pope and I'll never be, <laughs> know what I want to be. How about a uh, theologian or historical Christian figure you'd want to meet or bring back to life? You know, I, I think that uh, it would be a bridge between two personalities. I'm going to cheat and, and give you two. Uh, Leslie Newbegin would be my kind of apostolic teacher hero. Um, totally flipped my world upside down. I think back in the turn of the millennium, we were very much focused on, I was living in Europe, very postmodern Europe. America had not hit a lot of the things Europe, um, probably 30 years ahead in its postmodernity. And a lot of what was happening in the church is the tweaking of ecclesiology, you know, the Gen X church that had a lot more of the communal, um, spiritual uh, exercises and the experience um, elements and got away from just the talking head and the seeker-sensitive models, all these things, was really a bells and whistles tweaking to get more people in the door, not an incarnational kind of ecclesiology that uh, Newbegin has taught us. And, you know, if you're, if you're doing mission well and your discernment is, is done well, and that's, they're not the same. There's a lot of people who focus on missional and they, they just don't do discernment well, and you're not going to do mission well if you don't. But I think that that Newbegin helped me tremendously to allow um, ecclesiology to emerge out of a contextual engagement and real relationships and not an imposed kind of ecclesiology. And I feel that's where um, no matter whatever, what context we're in, we don't have to focus on a form of church. I get concerned with a focus on micro churches as the solution to everything <laughs> now. It's yeah, like fishing yeah. off the side of the boat. You know, we all <laughs> run over here, but you know, I know, I know Brian Sanders and he would say this. It's like, no, well, micro church is a great, uh, element to have pieced into your ecclesiology, but you know you need to discern that. You need to do it in context on the ground and let form uh, follow that work. And so Newbegin has taught taught me that, and he's taught many many people this. And we're still rolling that out. Um, although I think missional has is a word that I'd like to see us uh, maybe replace because it's so aligned with business alignment language and. 
so prone to the pragmatic evangelicalism that uh, Robert Weber brought out so long ago in Younger Evangelicals that, you know, we, we actually, you know, can so focus on church as an instrument and we are in, we are instruments of God for this great mission because we have a missionary God. And it's like, we're never instruments and God's church is not primarily an instrument. It's his bride. You know, it's in relationship with God and mission is an outflow of the deep love of God. But we can so quickly, especially in American Enneagram three culture, put the pragmatic, um, you know, get her done achieving, um, without really, and that gets very much into using people and using the body towards some agency end constantly. And so anyway, I don't think Newbegin was there. I think that's what we've done with a lot of Newbegin stuff. And I feel like Eugene Peterson would be my other, uh, you know, kind of blended personality, the shepherd teacher, you know, a brilliant teacher, but always calling the church back to its being wed to culture, to uh, marketing, um, con- consumer capitalism, to empire. Um, you know, we we are wed too tightly to empire. And I wish Newbegin and, and Peterson could be here <laughs> with us um, somehow to continue to help us to see that, um, you know, God loves us us dearly. God desires to form us as as human beings and to show us a new way to be human as he has done in Christ. But um, we we really need a a holism. And I think Newbegin and Peterson together, if God could merge those, certainly he has in in women and people of color and others, just not two white men. But I'm I'm saying that perspective wed together is, is vitally needed um, today. So. Yeah, that's great. I like that. Um, what do you think history will remember from our current time and place? You know, I think there's two things I remembered back in, uh, the early 2000, um, you know, we talked, I don't know if it was Stanley Grins or others we were talking about, uh, the postmodern dilemma that we were facing back then, but two questions came up, which were, we were warned of back then. And I see them as absolutely as central, central through the pandemic and around the world and in, in America, especially, and in the church. And that's two questions. What is true and who is trustworthy? Those are the two most important questions for humanity to answer as well as for the church to answer. And I think right now we've got too many different ideas about those answers. And uh, it means we're all over the place fighting each other. It's interesting, the schisms and the infighting um, just validates the need for the gospel, a gospel of reconciliation across all kinds of systems of exclusion and, you know, swaths of humanity that think they've got it figured out versus other swaths of humanity. And I'm like, you know, we we have to unify, but we need to actually answer those questions together. And for humanity, the hope of humanity would be um, 
that we could present a united front and showing the God who is trustworthy, creator. And to have that view of scripture that I was talking about that says, you know, I'm not talking, we're not talking about mushy love. We're talking about love that unites, you know, the meaning of love that has elements of justice. And, you know, you can't, you can't, you know, continue to live with yourself uh, as central and denying um, a God and the name of love and that being enough, but that we need the love first and foremost, but we, we need to continue to help the world and help the church to bow its knee to our creator. And also to recognize how easily we attach ourselves uh, to things, lesser gods. And a lot of that lesser God stuff is tied up in empire today and the church attaching itself to, um, to empire. And uh, it ne- there's, the church needs to repent. And in some ways, I'll just say it. And that's where it's complicit, whether it's in supporting you know, gun legislation. That I'm not going to get into those hot points too in the nuances, but certainly there are elements of consumer capitalism without a conscience, um, a system of entitlement that so undergirds a lot of American uh, culture. I mean, all these things the church arguably has com- become complicit in and losing its first love. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, those are good points. I want to ask you um, for this last question, if you can tie in, you mentioned, or obviously you have experience, uh, many years experience in in Europe. And I can't remember if we talked about it or if this was from your book, um, kind of about, you know, the the obvious idea that Europe kind of being ahead of America as far as kind of post-Christian, post-Christian dumb. I'm Mm -hmm. curious I don't know if you want to share maybe hopes for the future of Christianity or, or maybe some thoughts on the future of Christianity in America based on your experiences in Europe. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, a British theologian, uh, you may be familiar with Stuart Murray um, and the church after, after Christendom or post-Christendom. I don't remember which one it's called, but I think it's the church after Christendom. And in other writings, he talks about the dynamic of um, not only belonging before believing, but behaving before believing. Mm-hmm. We have focused so much on people uh, thinking their way into new ways of acting. Mm-hmm. When we also need to give even, I would say even more time in the season ahead to helping people outside the church act their and in the church you know, act their way into new ways of thinking. Act their way into new ways of thinking. Yeah, think your way into new ways of acting and act your way into new ways of thinking. I mean, they're they're both, um, you know, they're both needed. And I think that's that's just to say, you know, God is constantly, I talked about the shalom proclivity. I would say to, you know, the future hope of Christianity is that God is constantly working with human hearts and, and minds, and there's this body element too, where 
we learn things not just through the head and not, not just through passion and through the heart. We learn them through a practice spirituality. And I think that holism uh, is somewhat captured by this thinking our way in the new ways of acting and acting our ways in the new uh, hmm. ways of thinking. But, you know, in terms of, of a lived ecclesiology, a lot of people are talking about a centered set ecclesiology um, you know, which is a welcoming ecclesiology that operates um, taking advantage of this belonging, you know, creating spaces for people to belong before they believe that, mm -hmm. you know, within culture and within our ecclesial environments and wherever we are out in culture, but also inviting uh, people to try on the practices of the body of Christ and, and let that speak, let that begin to change them rather than arguing them or getting them to believe the right thing. Um, you know, people can run into truth and choose to believe it, but if they get transformed hmm. by practice, mm -hmm. uh, they're much more apt to say, wow, this is really true because I know I've tried it on. And I think to have that dynamic of the belonging before believing and behaving or participating and practices before believing, um, you know, provides a long awakening process that, you know, the church is not very good at. We just throw proclamation out there into this vacuum sometimes, but it's like proclamation happens within the midst of, of those invitations to a practiced spirituality, the invitation to belong to something meaningful, bigger than oneself. And so, that I have hope in that if 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 the church can begin to to work with God and recognize all the thin places that God is creating around the globe and relationships, God has always been creating these, but yeah. um, you know there's there's much more an openness to learn from indigenous uh, Christian theology and from Southern world theology and other kinds of theologies that get us away from the white male, you know, Western European uh, theologizing. You know, it's mm -hmm. all a beautiful mosaic, but I, it ought to help us in the proclamation um, of a gospel for, for all humankind. And, um, you know, having said that, you know, when I was reading this morning, uh, you know, that, uh, that, text out of 10, which is Acts 10, the second Pentecost, perhaps, you know, you're reading that further, further in, and, you know, it, it begins to talk about the, uh, you know, that Peter's giving that explanation to Cornelius and his household all gathered, and he does talk about the judge of the living and the dead, <laughs> you know, and he talks about pro proclaiming uh, a gospel of forgiveness of sins. And so we have to recognize there still is sin and there still is a need for forgiveness and there still is a judgment. And you have Jesus Christ as, you know, Peter saying, he's not using, you know, God, he's saying, you know, Christ Jesus, the, the judge of the living and the dead. And uh, we have a gospel, but there's, there's also a sense, I, I think, still of a need to be zealous in our proclaiming of it, um, you know, and giving people the opportunity to rework their allegiance to 
who they who they were designed for in the first place place as human beings to be elite alleged to i don't know if that's even a word yeah. but yeah rather than all these lesser gods and idols and certainly the pride of man and scientific materialism and all these things that displace god <laughs> who they're going to pledge allegiance to perhaps ultimate allegiance to right that that's yeah yeah, yeah that's right so i do i do have hope and i i think the biggest hope for me, the, the veracity of, of truth that comes through me seeing my own longings as a human being, every human being is a complex array of longings, but we have the deepest longings, and they, they point towards something that is coming, that we, we get foretastes of it now, and beauty, and relationships, and art, and you know, N.T. Wright deals with this and, you know, the echoes of the kingdom that we experience that trigger deep longings in us and say, oh, I wish I could hold on to that, but it's just so fleeting. And to me, that's the greatest missional signal. We haven't really focused as strongly on the longings of humanity and how they point toward a new creation coming where these things will be brought to perfection. And we'll see that. And Knowing that there's a God who is the author behind that and behind those longings that put them in me and all humans, I think to me that that provides the greatest hope that that shalom uh, will be the outcome ultimately and the fulfilling of all the desires of humans human hearts for those that want it for those yeah. that you know I, I'm still a firm believer that that God doesn't force God's self upon anyone, there would never be free will. But, you know, we always have the choice to be won by love, and God is a good long worker at that. <laughs> yeah, I like the way you say that, a good long worker. Well, thanks so much for your conversation and appreciate appreciate your insights here. Uh, where can people connect with you online? Um, well, I think the easiest they could... Um, you know, write me DL Steigerwald at gmail.com. Uh, I still read e email. I'm probably archaic in that regard, <laughs> but um, also, you know, our, our website, our family, uh, my, our family LLC, um, Artesia resourcing.com. Um, you know, you can find more out about me and about what my wife and I do um, to try to make our little tiny dent for the kingdom mm -hmm. there. Well, thanks so much again for your time, uh, for flexibility, for being gracious with me and, and my recording situation, and uh, uh, leave you with a word of peace. May God's peace be with you. Thank you, Lauren. It's been a pleasure. I look forward to uh, more connects, and God bless you on the Future Christian Broadcast. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on the Future Christian Podcast. To learn more about Lauren or the podcast, visit future-christian.com. One more thing before you go, do us a favor and subscribe to the podcast. And if you're feeling especially generous, leave a review. It really helps us get the word out to more people about the podcast. The Future Christian Podcast is a production of Torn Curtain Arts and Resonate Media. Our episodes were mixed by Danny Burton, and the production support is provided by Paul Romaglevitt. Thanks, and go in peace.